Jesse here. Thanks for listening to Many Realms. In this episode, we are playing Bluebeard's Bride, which is a horror RPG with a specific focus on the oppression of women and includes concepts like violence, abuse, and body horror. You can use the full list of content warnings and the episode transcript linked in the description to determine if you'd like to listen to this episode. Previously on Many Realms. We started our game of Bluebeard's Bride, wherein our players control the titular bride as she explores the rooms of her absent husband's house. She has seen two rooms so far. A sewing room full of mutilated women, pinned and trimmed and stuffed to please Bluebeard, and a stable, where a centaur-like creature held an uneasy existence between the roles of champion, mother, and beast of burden. In both cases, our bride took a token of disloyalty, suspicious of Bluebeard's intentions. Will our bride resolve to disobey Bluebeard, or will the further secrets of the manor change her mind yet? My name is Eli, I play the mother, and it's good to be here. Hi, my name is Jordan, I play the animus, and it's good to be here. Hi, I'm Jory, I play the witch, and it's good to be here. I'm Jesse. I'm the groundskeeper, and my watering can is full of blood. How did that happen? Uh, welcome to Many Realms. exit the stable, you find yourself not in the hallway through which you entered it, but a small, decrepit-looking courtyard. A light rain is starting to flow in over the grounds of the manor, and soon you feel your hair and skin start to dampen. There are a dozen doors arrayed around the walls of this courtyard. You find one, and you select a key. What does the key look like? It's tarnished brass. It's all textured and worn down, not at all new like the last one. It's so simple, it looks like it could be for like a diary lock. It's not a complex key at all, and there's a silver ribbon around it. You unlock a door that is made of wood and inlaid with wrought iron. The wrought iron inlay forms curling, coiling vines that trail up and down the door, and the knob is sculpted in the shape of a beautiful blossoming rose. You unlock the door, step inside, and the door closes behind you. Inside, you find yourself in a beautiful greenhouse. Though it looks like it has been left for disuse for some time. You see empty garden beds full of soil extending down this corridor on your left and on your right. Even though it was raining only a moment ago, when you exited the courtyard, sunlight streams in, and you can see a thick, densely knotted wood all around the exterior, a few feet away from the edge of the greenhouse walls. You hear the sounds of birds chirping overhead, and the sound of soft humming from deeper within the greenhouse. In the center of the space, there is a large, gnarled oak tree 
standing tall and proud, branches adorned in thick green leaves. What do you do? I'd like to plant some seeds. Okay. Rummaging through one of the wheelbarrows, you find a torn open bag of seeds. The label has been ripped off of the top of it. The seeds are puffy, uh, off-white, and give a little bit under your grasp. Gently, you step over to the garden bed, which is raised four feet up, and you scoop away some earth, plant each seed, cover them with soil. The seeds sleep soundlessly below the earth. I'm not afraid, but I would like to give up the ring. Who would you like to give the ring to? I think I'm going to give it to the witch who... That's the side of me that most enjoys gardening and finds it tranquil and and lovely. When you give up the ring, until the witch gives up the ring herself, you will be immune to trauma. Sick. Wait, someone that doesn't have the ring can take trauma? You can. Some sisters have, like, moves to, yeah, share their trauma or, like, even completely um, give it away. If if you're taking too much trauma and you don't want to take it, you can... uh, suggest that the sister, another sister who you might feel is like responsible, you can uh, give them the trauma. Okay, so I want to examine some of the uh, flora and fauna that I'm seeing. You step up to a, a terrarium that is actually like enclosed that has a huge flower growing in it with multiple blossoms and thick, heavy vines that curl out and press Uh, with what looks like some pressure against the corners of this terrarium. The flowers range in color from delicate blushing pink to deep crimson red. And as you look closer, you can see that the flower petals are shifting and moving, even though there is no wind inside of this room. I think I'll place it down and move on. Sure. Maybe the tree. At the base of the tree, you find that... uh, Many visitors to the greenhouse have carved names and symbols into the trunk. Hearts, arrows, stars, moons form a a latticework of scars from, you know, waist height to head height around the, the trunk of this majestic old oak tree. You hear that same gentle humming, a female voice in song. Um, I'd like to examine the names and the symbols on the tree further. Okay, why don't you investigate a mysterious object and ask me some questions. Whose item is this? On the ground, by, say, the height of your knees, there is a large hollow, a knot in the base of the old oak tree. And looking inside, you can see that there are a pair of gloves and a trowel that are arranged very formally, in reverence, in ceremony, and uh, stitched into the wrist of the gardening glove is the letter C. What about this item is odd or uncanny? When you remove the trowel from the knot in the tree, you see that the point of it is wicked sharp, far sharper than a gardening trowel needs to be to do its work. It has the sharpness of a deadly dagger. And when you look up into the carvings around the tree, some of these names have been brutally scratched away with a very sharp point. I'm not going to let go of the trowel, but I'm going to go and examine the woman's voice. Sure. In the rear part of the greenhouse, there is a servant. This servant is an older woman. She is 
pleasantly fat. She has frizzled gray hair that pokes out from under her broad-brimmed hat, and she doesn't seem to notice you. She's humming quietly to herself as she is unearthing bulbs from uh, where they've sprouted and transplanting them to a larger bed uh, at the back of the greenhouse. I will talk to her. I'll say, um, good afternoon. What are you working with here? I'm interested in what she's gardening. She didn't hear you approach her, and she seems startled by your sudden proximity. She looks you up and down with um, contempt and boredom. She says, Oh, it's you. I didn't hear you there. She resumes her work. I'll repeat my question. What's this? I've got to get this garden into a right state. It looks terrible. He told me that you demanded a new garden. I told him I wanted a garden with which to work on, not a new, pristinely kept garden already. I've been worked to the bone, preparing this place for you. And all you have is argument. I see Uh, what type of lady you are. uh, The animus says that she can't talk to us this way. The mother agrees. Well, I am the lady of this house, and I did not speak to you with any malice or ill intent. Maybe there was a miscommunication between me and my husband and that affected you. I'm sorry you're working so hard, but you don't get to speak to me, your employer, so rudely. She makes a deep, mocking bow. And she says, After working here as long as I have, you'll forgive my familiarity. If you'd like this place to be yours to work, she hooks a thumb over to the bed of bulbs that need to be dug up and says, Then work. Sure. What? And frankly, gladly, I start planting bulbs. I'm not worried about dirtying my white dress. I don't give pause or any indication that I'm uncomfortable doing this kind of work. The Animus is upset with you because we came here to escape a life like this. There is a difference between enjoying something like this and obeying the order of someone whose status is now lesser than ours. The witch isn't interested in status. She's frustrated that this woman is assuming that I would turn my nose up at this kind of work. And I want to show her that, no, I'm not above her. I'm willing to get my hands dirty and happy to do something like garden or farm or any of this kind of labor. The mother wants you to fire her. We like this kind of labor, and that's their job. So what use do they have anymore? They didn't respect our authority as the lady of the house. Didn't we choose the gardener? Well, not if she she isn't like a fresh hire, then no. So then there's another person who's coming to replace her. Or aid, or something of the sorts. Besides, what do you, uh, the witch, what do you think of her work? I don't think it's quite to my taste, and I wanted to be able to plan it and do this myself. It isn't necessarily her job to plan the garden, it's to maintain the garden. But it's also her job to respect us. Does the woman react to me taking this on before I respond? Sure, yes. Bride, you, with maybe a touch of annoyance and arrogance, turn to the tray of bulbs that need to be replanted into the soil. With your wickedly sharp trowel, you scoop in and pull out a bulb, except that instead of spindly roots skewering the dirt and spreading out to collect nutrients, instead this bulb is sprouting fine locks of silky blonde hair. 
you pull and you pull, and feet upon feet upon yard of blonde hair emerge from the dirt along with this bulb. The gardener doesn't bat an eye as you are holding this almost tulip bulb that is trailing a complete mane of silky honey blonde hair in front of you. Again, what are you planting here? What we plant will serve us when it comes time for the spring. That's bulbs. I think you know that. Get them in the ground before the frost. I'm not asking you what bulbs do. I'm asking you what plant this is. She looks it up and down. She doesn't seem to find anything weird about it. She says, uh, there's a full log in the gardener's workbook. Thank you. And I'll go check on that. The gardener's workbook, she indicates, is at a little workstation in the very rear of the greenhouse. It is a big leather-bound journal. It was once imprinted with a name and an inscription, but those two have been carved out with the same point that suggests the sharp trowel you keep tucked in at your waist. You flip through, and you see uh, the documentation of the plants in the greenhouse, a hand-drawn map that changes season to season. And you look for the particular plant that you just dug up. You see the one that was pressing against the walls of the terrarium, and then you find it, a bulb that is sporting a huge spray of blonde hair, and next to it, one in a deep chestnut, one in a fiery red, one in a demure and mature silver. They're not named. But there is a note in the corner of the page that says, I thought I'd try something different. I'm going to go to the gardener and tell her, I don't want these plants here. I would like you to please review your plans. I will list some um, regular plants that I would like in this spot as well. She looks up to you with a hard expression. She says, I've done all this work labored here for hours in the sun and you'd have me undo it at your whim is that correct your ladyship fire her we have another gardener coming you know her bloodshot eyes widen in horror she says that i did not know madam is my time here at its end i'll have to speak to my husband but it may be coldly she snatches the bulb out of your hand as you extend it to her and roughly she rips it up, the hair follicle snapping under her thick leathery hands, and she tosses them into the bag of trash at her feet. She heads over to the cart and she starts digging up the rest of the bulbs. Her movements soon become frenzied and furious. The song that she was humming before resumes, but in a a shrill, violent voice, Discordant, she seems furiously angry as she tears up this whole garden bed that she was working on. And then when it's done, she says, I've completed your request, madam. You're new to the garden. Yes. Perhaps you've not seen everything it has to offer you yet. What are you getting at? If I'm to go, I'd like to make sure it stays in good hands. And perhaps I could show you everything there is to see. Um, arms crossed. I follow. She leads you back to the plant that was bursting at the edges of the terrarium, the one with the flowers in shades of red, pink, and burgundy. She says, I thought I saw you out of the corner of my eye taking a look at this earlier. Have you seen a plant like this before? The answer is no, right? 
The answer is certainly no. So then, no, I have not. She delicately uh, undoes the hook that locks the top of the terrarium. And then she says, stay back a moment. She opens the two top panels and she leads in. In her hand, she pinches a mysterious white chalky substance that she drips onto the flowers. And as she does, they stop shivering and moving and seem still. Then she looks back and she waves you over. I peer over at what she's showing me. She says, these flowers are his favorite, but they're difficult to keep. He always loves when he can see you wearing one around the house in your hair or at your throat. Do you see what's in the center of each flower? What's in the center of each flower? It's hard to tell. The petals grow thick and they're sort of folded over right at the center. And she says, lean in and open it. Ugh, sure. Yeah, I do. You do? Yeah. You're brave. Uh, You lean in, pressing one hand against the base of the terrarium to get your head in so you can reach and open this petal. And as you do, the gardener slams both panels of the roof where they catch where your neck meets your shoulders. You take one trauma and you see the flowers start to shiver and grow again. The gardener is holding your shoulders, pinning your arms against the edge of the table and laughing, deranged, maniacal laugh as your faces are inches away from these flowers that are starting once more. I'm gonna try and dirty myself with violence to break free. Okay, roll with carnality. Eight. Okay, a mitigated hit. You will inflict trauma, which is shoving away this groundskeeper and breaking free. You can choose to disable, silence, or mutilate them. I'm going to disable. Okay. And as well, on a seven to nine, on a mitigated hit, you're going to choose run results. Either your vulnerability will open you up to trauma or your carelessness will leave you in a bad spot. Uh, I think my carelessness will leave me in a bad spot. Summoning the strength that you have, you rear back and try to force yourself out of the cage and throw the gardener to the floor. When you do, she lands with a sharp slicing sound and you can see the trowel that's hooked onto her belt digging into her thigh and her buttock. She screams in pain as she falls down and bashes her head against the wooden leg of another table. You try to pull back to get away from the flowers, but your hair is still caught and tangled in the edge of the cage. And as you pull away, you find the metal yanking you back. Your head smashes against the front of the terrarium broken glass showers down on you and you can see the vines of the flowers creeping over your neck. I give up my ring, right? You're going to give the ring away. All right. I think I'm going to give it to Animus. Yeah, thanks. Enjoy being strangled, I guess. Yeah, this seems to be happening. These vines are weaving themselves into your hair and across your neck. You're not sure yet what is in the very center of each of these flowers, but you could probably guess. Uh, No, I couldn't. It's another fox baby. It's fox babies all the way down. My face is the rooster. Oh, a face move. Tell me about it. Face moves for those listening at home are things that each sister gets one of that only they can do. Yeah, uh, the rooster can mark one trauma to give a direct order to an NPC. They do it, but choose one. And my order is either can be to carry out to the letter and then some is overwhelming and carried out sloppily or is not something they can do, and a third party steps in to carry it out. And I think I'd like to do that one. My order is to get me out of here, cut these vines, something akin to that, directed towards uh, the gardener here. And my order 
is not something they can do and a third party steps in to carry it up. You scream as you order this gardener to release you from your bonds. And then suddenly you feel gentle, easy pressure at your neck and the sounds of a small pen knife slicing as these vines are removed from your throat and your hair is delicately unwound and where it can't be unwound, it is gently and politely snipped at the ends to allow your head and neck freedom from this terrarium. As you crane your neck to gain view, you see a woman that you remember from your conversation with Bluebeard that he had asked you to help him decide on hiring a new gardener. She is wearing full gardening gear with long leather padded gloves that reach up to her elbow. She has dark skin, mischievous dark eyes, and close cropped black hair. She has stiff, severe posture and a warm smile on her face as she leads you away from the terrarium and smooths out your hair with a gentle touch. What's her name? Her name is Luna. Thank you very much, Luna. I was awfully terrified there. She bows her head. I turn to the other gardener. What is the meaning of this? The other gardener is staggering to her feet, the back of her trousers soaked with blood. She throws down her trowel and it pings against the floor and she says, I've had enough of it here. I've had enough of you. You're not fit to call yourself a bride. And she turns and storms towards the door. Okay, and you're not fit to call yourself a gardener. Luna blushes at your strong words. Uh Aha! I'm trying to think what else there is to see in this room. She says, I see I've arrived right on time. Yes. This is where I'm to work? This is it. Do you know the layout well? I understand you're new. Not particularly, no. You got um, a hand-drawn map. Oh, not particularly, but I do have this... (laughs) 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 Not particularly, but I do have this map, so I'm getting increasingly familiar. She smiles softly and she says, If the lady favors it, I would most appreciate a tour of my new workplace. Uh, consulting my team. Yes. I like this new gardener so far. I think we'll work well with her. I do appreciate that she's not trying to murder us, so a tour is the least we could do. Okay, big tour time. (laughs) You lead Luna consulting the gardener's book on a tour of the greenhouse, and maybe you indicate to her where you see new specimens growing, which... Or maybe you dote on her and ask her questions about her life mother as you circle around the perimeter of the greenhouse. When you reach the tree, she stops in thought and she caresses gently all of the carved names and numbers. She looks to you, bride, and she says, I always think it's a shame to see something like this. It's not the tree's job to bear our writings upon it as all it wants to do is grow. The witch agrees with her. I don't think I like to see nature graffitied in this way as well. Uh, Okay, I relay the words of the witch. Luna smiles and she uh, steps closer to you. She says, I'm happy to hear that my new mistress has such a fondness for nature. It makes for a joyful workplace. And I hope that it will be my honor to serve you here in this home for a long time. Luna is standing very close to you. She has taken off both of her gloves, and with one hand, she has placed a gentle finger tracing around the diameter of your wrist. A garden is always such a nice place to get away 
and spend some time by oneself. I ever so slightly take a step back and and agree with her. When you step back, she recoils in uh, fear and shame. Uh-huh. She looks down at her own hands as though they have betrayed her heart and her mind. And then she looks up at you with tears welling in her eyes. My apologies, uh, your ladyship. I did not mean... Nothing to apologize for. You mean it? Do we mean it? (laughs) Yes. Forgiveness is a virtue. Okay. Uh, The words of the mother filter through. (laughs) I wonder if there's something you can help me with. And what's that? I came to this job because I'm passionate about gardening and because I had hoped I could find a new environment where I myself could really flourish. This is not something I ask lightly. Promise me before I show you what I need that you will help me. I don't think that I can promise that as I don't know you well enough to have conversations of trust, but I do like you well enough that should you feel comfortable sharing it anyway, I will do everything that I can to help you. If you cast aside your eyes and run from me, it shall be more than I can bear. I tell you that. I assure you I don't intend to. She undoes the cravat at her neck and slowly unbuttons the heavy gardening jacket she wears. Below that, she is wearing a thin silken shirt, and you can see that her frame is lumpen and misshapen. It's almost as though she's covered with strange boils or lesions. And when she unbuttons her shirt, you can see that Luna, the new gardener, is studded all over with sprouts. Little buds curl up like hairs from her flesh, bearing small white flowers and thick fuzzy leaves. From her collarbone down to her navel, there are dozens of them. And as she looks down at you, her cheeks burning with shame, she says, I need to be pruned. Hmm. I'm inclined to help her, if only for curiosity's sake. I would like you to help her for the sake of helping her. Uh, I tell her I'll do my best to help, yes. You sit her on one of the tables in the greenhouse, and with a pair of pruning shears, you slowly begin to attend to her form. At first, she's very silent, and you can tell she's deeply uncomfortable. But as you start to trim away these plants and leave them just simple mounds beneath her skin, she begins to breathe more easily and a little bit of the familiar smile returns to her face. When you get to uh, the third or fourth, you have to really lean in. It's in the small of her back that you're trying to trim and you can hear something whispering to you from the plant in the small of her back, a voice an inhuman, high, reedy voice that's saying, let me out. Something inside of you speaks. What is it? She frowns. She says, I cannot hear them. All I can do is feel them moving under me. Do they harm you? I do not live in comfort, but it is the only life I have known. They ask to be removed. Would it harm me? Almost certainly so, though it's hard to say if it would be for better or for worse. I live to serve your ladyship. What do you think is right? Okay, sisters. Sisters, we got a code 22 lady with talking plants in her. I think the mother would like to tear them out. Yeah. I don't know if you want to ask if they have more information for you. They may not. I ask her to lay down. 
She does as you wish. Uh, I feel along her back to find where these things reside. Maybe the size of a grape burrowing under the skin, wriggling. Okay. I make a incision along the length and try to remove it. It bleeds a little, but it's not as bad as you first feared. You pull out a bulb, but this bulb doesn't trail with long white hairs. This bulb ends in a mouth. Something bug-like, a round maw with little wriggling teeth. And when you look down at the wound that you've carved into Luna, you can see that the muscle of her back has chew marks in it. Like she's a leaf being devoured by a caterpillar. When you pull it out, she sighs softly in pleasure. She says, that feels so much better. What are you? To who? The little bug. It doesn't speak. It just kind of dangles on the edge of your grip, looking for something to latch onto to keep feeding. I ask the the gardener what this is. I can't name them. They've been a part of me for as long as I can remember, but now I feel I can breathe so much easier. The itching has stopped. I crush it between my fingers. Uh, Luna gasps when you do so. She says, I could feel that. Feel that how? I know not. It, it was like a shiver. There's more, right? There are maybe nine or ten more. I'll continue that process until something more alarming happens, as I'm sure it will. Are you going to crush them all? If they don't speak. Okay. The next one you pull out says, Do not hurt me. Why? What are you? I am what I am. Do you have food for me to eat? That depends on what you eat. I'm not particular. A place to live, food to eat, and I'll be happy. Then why did you take residence inside of this woman? It wasn't my decision. Whose decision was it? All of us. Set me free, leave me safe, I'll not harm you. What I'm looking at is evidence to the contrary. Is there like a jar? Sure, you can find like an old dusty mason jar under a table. Alright, get in there. Sure, you start removing these bud creatures and depositing them in this jar. And each time you do, Luna's sighs of contentment start to swell into moans of ecstasy as you make these gentle cuts, remove these burdens from her flesh, and throw them squealing into a large jar where they wriggle on top of each other and press and wave their leaves and flowers against the walls of glass. The last one is on her breast, directly above her heart. She looks at you, maintains strong eye contact, and she says, Yes, do it, thank you, yes. You carve, you remove, and you throw it in the jar. Luna looks at you one last time. She raises a hand to her lips. She blows you a kiss, and she collapses onto the table, her eyes unmoving, her body still. Uh, I test for a pulse. You find none. No! I go to the jar, I open it, and I, I ask what happened. What have you done? Thank you. 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 Thank you for what? Thank you for releasing us. Have you killed my friend? No. No, no, no. Never. We wouldn't. I don't believe you. No, you must. You must believe. We like you. We like you very much. Okay, witches. This is a little gross for me. Like the childbirth thing. <laughs> I think I can't participate. One thing that I took from this room was the miscommunication between the old gardener and us because I had come in expecting a mostly empty plot of land that we would attend on our own with assistance but Bluebeard pushed this woman so hard that she was already poisoned against us right so um 
Or I think I'd actually want to take a token of faithfulness because in this case, Bluebeard was pushing someone else for our benefit. It's true, independent, I guess, of what's happened in the room, that there was an example of poor character on Bluebeard's part to both allow for this level of insubordination as well as uh, neglection, uh, even though we recommended this individual to be hired to to not know anything of this just seems woefully ignorant on both counts. I mean, I don't know how to interpret this per se, but I would like, the mother would like to take a token of loyalty here. Why is that? As the witch has said, it, it seems that Bluebeard was trying to protect us here. Maybe from the mother's perspective, he's saving us from this potential horror. I, I, I think I do need to see something else. Okay. Um, where would you like to look, Animus? When it was still me, I planted some bulbs. Right, the bulbs. I, I will, yes, I will, I, will, I will check on these seeds. The bride returns to the front of the greenhouse. Um, in this garden bed by the door, these seeds have grown impossibly quickly. You have planted many a seed in your life on the farm, and these seeds have already grown tall shoots, seven or eight inches, with little flower buds next to them. The ends of their leaves are uh, tipped brown, and the stems are a little woody. The flowers look a little bit wilted. Water them. Okay. I will do so. You water the flowers with an old tin watering can you find tucked under the bed by your feet. And each time you sprinkle uh, a splash of water, water that seems to have uh, an improbable, uncanny shimmer about it, each flower blooms. And as each flower blooms, a single musical note emerges from within the flower. And when you've grown all of them, the same melody you heard the gardener murmuring before plays out in rich, beautiful choral tones across the front of the greenhouse. The bride stares out now at the the entrance of this greenhouse and takes in the unsuspected beauty uh, of this scene. A cycle of life, death, and rebirth playing out in real time before her eyes of humankind and nature. This gardener lies presumably deceased the seeds that were at once, as you mentioned, grape-sized within her now dance across the garden in rapid movements. This orchestra of flowers playing this tree that is in memoriam of, of all kinds of souls that have come into this world and come out, and uh, the bride empathizes with the pain and loss and the same rebirth that Bluebeard has experienced countless times and recalls similar experiences in her life, losing a, a, a grandmother and, and a few stray flowers spurting out from where she was once buried and remembers the pain that she had when when these types of events occurred and can only imagine the burden in which Bluebeard must 
bear to experience that time and time and time and time again, and yet still reaches out for someone to fill that hole, knowing full well he'll just be hurt in the end, and takes a token of faithfulness. Perhaps the gloves. Thank you. I really liked that interpretation of the room. The bride leaves the greenhouse holding on to a pair of gardening gloves. No longer in a courtyard, she finds herself walking in what looks to be the basement of the manor. There is no light save for a few flickering torches that hang from brackets every few feet along the wall. Damp flagstones under her feet make strange, wet, echoey sounds as she moves. She finds a door, and she notices a key on her ring. What does a key look like, Animus? As she feels through the ring of keys, there she notices a gap, three centimeter gap between one key and another, the two keys being kind of mundane in their nature. And upon moving her hand across this, as she's feeling across the keys, she notices that there's actually another key inside of this, this gap. She feels along and, 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 and realizes that this is a very long stretched key which has no uh, corporeal form. What does it look like? It's, you can't see it. It's invisible? Yes. When she runs her finger along it, what does she learn from its outline? There are many sharp points protruding out from it and that the actual length of the key is unusually large. It continues on almost uh, the length of a small dagger. You find a door, plain, undecorated wood, rough, scratched, with chipped paint. The window in the door is laid in with iron bars, like that of a cell. The knob is plain black iron. You unlock the door, you enter the room, and the door closes behind you. You find yourself in a dimly lit kitchen. You can see huge tables for preparing food, two of them pushed together in the center of the room. In the corner, there is a large fireplace uh, attached to the wall, and that is the only source of light in the room right now, the flickering embers in the fireplace that play shadows against the large soup pot that is hanging. Around you, there are countertops, cupboards, large storage boxes, and a rack on the wall where the last of the firelight glints against the edges of half a dozen wickedly sharp knives. What do you do? I give up the ring and pass it to the mother. Is there any food in this kitchen? On the table, it looks like there are the remains of uh, what was once a nice meal. There are plates that are littered with bones of birds, scraps of gristle, the ends of stemmed vegetables. And in the corner, there is a pantry with a door ajar. And you can smell rich, warm loaves of bread, delicate, sharp cheeses wafting from this open door. Uh, I want to cook a meal. You uh, reach into the pantry and you gather in your skirt a modicum of ingredients that you bring over to the table. You set aside the dirty dishes for a moment, and then you start to prepare a plate of food. You grab a knife from the rack on the wall, and as you slice into one of the crisp red apples that is sitting in the pantry, 
you hear a scream. A scream almost as though it's coming from the cut apple itself. But of course, when you remove the blade and look at the apple, it looks completely normal. I call out to it. Hello? There's no response. I cut the apple again. Another scream of pain. I cut a different object. The sharp cheese, when you delicately slice a corner off, elicits a whimper of pain. The meat, when you carve into its salted, cured hide, lets loose a mighty bellow of agony. Sisters, what do we think we should do here? The food looks normal. Take a bite out of it. Does it taste normal? I take a bite. It tastes delicious. Does it scream when I bite it? Oh, heavens, yes. You monster. Um, I don't know if I'm in trouble, but I'd like to take stock once more. Okay, I'll allow you to take stock. This is kind of tense, the screaming food. Uh, you get to ask a question. <laughs> what horror here is hidden from the bride? Wincing in frustration, you delicately slice along the skin of one of the apples, and you hear another high, keening whimper of pain. And this time, you sharpen your ears, attempting to locate its source. It sounds like it's coming from the very back rear of the pantry from which you've gathered all this food. I investigate. You start clearing food out of the pantry. It is uncanny. It's strange how much fresh, rich, well-preserved, in great shape food there is, and it's overflowing in abundance. Bluebeard's pantry is well-stocked, and it is well-stocked for you, my dear, and all of your needs. At the back of the pantry, there is uh, a brick that is loose, and a little trail of dust piles onto the shelf in the back of the pantry. I claw at the bricks with all my might to get rid of it, see what's behind it. Behind the brick, as though woven into the very fabric of the building itself, is a human mouth. Its lips are plump, its teeth are white, clean, and straight, and it is a source of the screaming you've been hearing. It's like fused into the building, right? Like it is the building. That's as best as you can ascertain. You can't see any like other rest of a creature that it's connected to. Can I call for help for another person? Yeah, if you're if you're quite upset by what you're seeing here, I think you can roll with resilience. Uh, yeah, I feel so helpless here to protect and help another person, especially since apparently I'm the one causing this pain. Um, so I will cry out for help. Roll with resilience. Nine. On a seven to nine, they will help you, but there's a condition. A cook enters the kitchen. They are holding a big tray full of dirty dishes in their arms. And as they see you poking in the pantry, they clatter the tray loud on the table. Uh, It is a woman of middle age with straw colored hair tucked back under a white kerchief. She is wearing a blouse that is stained at the wrists and at the front with the stains of food preparation and big ample swishing skirts. She looks friendly and gentle. She sees you gazing into the back of the pantry, and she steps forward, clears her throat, and gently places a hand on each of your arms. She says, Now, Mom, looking at it won't make it any better. Come look at me. I look at her. You frightened yourself a little bit, didn't you, there? We have to help in the wall. I I don't know what to do. She, uh, with her hand, slowly reaches and shuts the pantry door. She says, You're the new one, yeah? The new lass. Yes. It's uh, a great honor to make your acquaintance. I didn't think it'd be quite like this. Just take a deep breath with me, all right? Okay, take deep breaths. 
as best I can. Didn't you enjoy the supper I made for you last night? Oh dear, it was lovely. I'm so grateful to you and your help and your kindness. I just, I don't know what that has to do. I I want to help. He told me all your favorites and I I worked for a couple weeks to make sure I had them just the way you liked them. Pretty proud of myself, but um, you know, dear, it doesn't come for free. Everything's got a cost and uh, it's far too long a walk to the market these days. What's your favorite food? Yeah, let's say fruit tarts. You understand, right, that this is, uh, we just want to make sure you're well-fed, put a little bit of meat on you as best we can. Yes, yes, I understand that. She reaches into the pantry, and uh, you can hear the sound of, like, the tongue moving in the mouth, um, but she keeps the door mostly closed, sticks her hand in, and then pulls it out with a fresh steaming fruit tart. Says it's strawberry. I'm sorry, she pulled that out of the mouth? She tried not to show you, but that seems to be your understanding. Oh, God. Dude, investigate it. Sure, yeah. What are we investigating? Let's investigate Dude, this. Try and mimic what she did. I think investigating the pantry is going to be different than um, trying to like recreate her movement. So, which do you want to do? Let's recreate her movement. I ask the cook for her favorite food. She smiles and she says, You don't need to put yourself out for me. I'm just fine with what I have. No. <laughs> the mother insists if you are going to suffer for my pleasure, I need to know what it feels like to suffer in return. Tis no suffering, madam, to help you, but, um, your kindness is noted. I'm glad to have such a shining face as yours haunting these halls. Once upon a time, there were some, uh, I think they call them macarons, left over after a dinner. I know I'm not supposed to, and I promise you won't tell mom, but I helped myself to one or two as I was cleaning up after the place, and I still think about them. Vanilla, almond... So rich, so soft on your tongue. That's my favorite food. I'm Irish now. <sighs> you don't have to fucking deal with it. You've been Irish the whole it time. Got, well, it got more Irish as I got more passionate about the food that I eat. So. <laughs> um, I take this cook by the hand because I need some strength for this. I There are tears welling up in my eyes. But a mother needs to have strength to protect her household. She sticks her hand in that wet, unhappy, screaming mouth with an oyster of a tongue and tries to pull out an almond and a vanilla macaron. The chef uh, squeezes your hand gently, says, that's it, dear, that's all right, don't you mind it. And inside the mouth, you can feel the tongue exploring the crevices between your fingers and licking underneath the edge of your fingernails. And then uh, when you're shuddering and you can't take it anymore, you feel weight in your hand and you pull your arm out of the pantry to reveal uh, three perfectly formed macarons in your hand. The cook's eyes light up. I give them to her. She wolfs them down in front of you messily, licking her fingers, wiping the filling off her face, and she says, It's rare to have a have a madam such as this. It's a treat for any servant. I hope I've calmed you down. If there's nothing else for you, I've got my duties to attend to. Yes. Thank you, ma'am. She curtsies, and uh, you can still hear her tongue wetly prying bits of macaron from between her teeth as she bustles out of the kitchen. Then I will finish up this room, I think. As I kind of touched on before, it takes the iron will. I mean, a woman in Bluebeard's household is a protector in a different way. Uh, And we must acknowledge that to live lavishly is to take food out of the mouth of another, literally. (laughs) 
Uh, and there's no way around that, and I will likely hurt people just by existing, but I have taken up the duty to be a protector, and that's what allows me to be so taken care of in, Blue, in Bluebeard's estate, and I will uh, take a token of faithfulness, unless my sisters are gonna, I don't know, rip my throat out in response. I don't disagree with you. I think that we should strive to be better than that, as should Bluebeard. I think that coming from where we came from, I think that it seems like already too quickly we're indulging in the finer things that at probably one point we would have promised ourselves that we wouldn't. And we're assimilating into this position of comfort that uh, presumably all these other brides before have. This may not have another bearing on actually Bluebeard, I suppose, but I think there's something to be said similarly that if he's lived that long and still has these types of doctrines, I don't know if he'll ever change things in a more positive way. Well, you swayed the mother a little bit. And I feel a little bit guilty. A little bit. But then I tell myself of how I could bring this food back to my family. I look down at our flat, skinny thighs and think about how, isn't it our turn now to feed for once? Look at the people above us who are so much more plump and comfortable. Haven't they been taking out of our mouths for long enough? And I take a token of faithfulness. But I feel a little bad about it because of the animus. What is the object you're taking as a token? I think you should take something that is m more of a faithful reminder to, like, our roots. Okay. Something like, even if it was deliberately you take stale bread okay. or molding bread or something like that. I like that, yeah. You exit the kitchen. You find yourself in what looks to be the top of like a spire you can see through high windows uh lashing rain and forks of thunder and lightning licking against the sky there are four or five doors arranged in a ring around here one of them calls out to you tell me about the key the shiniest fucking key i have ever seen it reflects light like no other like a metal that you didn't even know existed before it's basically glowing you use this luminous key to unlock a door that is carved with beautiful imagery of birds and fish and flowers, but each creature has eyes replaced with small rubies or emeralds. This door shimmers with wealth and luxury as it opens you up, swallows you, and the door shuts behind. You are standing inside a very well-appointed bedroom. It is small, but it is lavishly decorated. There is a four-poster bed with a silken canopy and a delicate shade of lavender suspended in one corner. There is a large vanity desk with a huge mirror in an ornate frame and a small stool in front of it. There is a wall that is covered in paintings arranged maybe three rows of three that depict a variety of interesting landscapes and portraits. And there is a writing desk below that where it seems as though someone was working on some piece of correspondence. I want to give this up. I want to give up the ring. <laughs> you guys are so nice about ring sharing. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like um, this room is sort of like mystical and sensual at best, but at worst, self-absorbed and vain. And uh, I'm sorry, Jory. <laughs> That is, uh, that is what I, it is. It is what Damn. the mother thinks of the 
uh, of the witch and, and why we sometimes don't get along is I think you're so absorbed in your own emotions and their importance, but I also recognize that you are tapped into some things that I don't understand, so I give up the ring. I love, I'm going to be nice and give up the ring, even though this game's about like having resentment between the sisters, and I'm going to give it to this bitch <laughs> called Chori's. Did someone the say self-absorbed? One. Couldn't be me. Anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I self-absorbedly go read the correspondence. It's a love letter. It hasn't been finished, and it hasn't been addressed or signed, but it speaks about a meeting late at night when everyone is asleep about the potency of secrecy and danger. The letter smells of perfume and describes a tryst that would take place of two lovers in conjoined ecstasy underneath a lavender sky. It's very florid, it's very evocative, and it's very erotic. You feel heat flushing up your collar onto your cheeks as you read this writing. Uh, I do not recognize the handwriting, correct? Do you want to investigate it? Yeah, sure. Whose item is this? The letter is unmarked, but there is an inkwell in the corner and a pen stuck into it. And the inkwell has a label that reads Anastasia. What about this is odd or uncanny? You lean in to smell the scent that is uh, perfuming the letter. And when you do, you inhale deeply this floral scent that has a richness to it, but also maybe the faintest sourness underneath. It's so powerful, your head starts spinning. When you open your eyes, you look around, cast your gaze about, and see a room that is wreathed in flames. Smoke bellows forth from the center of the bed and buffets the lavender canopy up and about like a storm cloud. You can see fire lapping up the legs of the table and spreading onto your arms. You scream and pull your hand back and then blink and open your eyes again and find yourself in the room you were just were before. Um, I'm going to put down the letter and go examine the bed and the bed linen. Sure. The uh, bed is beautifully made. Soft, plump pillows beckon you. You could swear you hear music coming somewhere from the head of the bed, a gentle tinking tune. Okay. Is there anything under the bed? Under the bed, you find a small wooden box that has been uh, wood burned in the top with an image of a dove. I'm gonna look in this box. When you open the box, you find a box of matches and a mirror and another note. What does the note say? This note looks like it is from a diary page. It speaks about fear. It speaks about worry about being found out of a secret being discovered. The author of this note is terrified in hopes that no one will look under the bed and find out what she's writing here. She says that if her transgressions are discovered, it's only fair that her life be forfeit. And it's signed A. Is there any evidence of who she was having the affair with or what kind of person around the room? Where in the room would you like to look? I'll open the sock drawer, see if there's anything there. You... Open the wardrobe to access the drawers and a cloud of greasy, nauseous black smoke spills out and chokes you. You cough and stutter and back away. By the time the wardrobe has cleared of smoke, you can see that there is a section at the top that has hanging on racks 
a number of fine clothes that have all been burned horribly, singed at the edges, pockmarked with small burns along the sides, and they all reek of smoke and ash. And below that, there are drawers. That's where you want to look? Yeah. In the first drawer, you find a small box of cigars. And there's a little map tucked in to the top of the cigar box. The map is of the coast where Bluebeard's Manor lies. And on the map, a little bay is circled in red ink. Okay. So I take it that's where this affair was going on. I guess I'll continue with my snoop. Is there a bedside table? There is. Great. I'll look there. On the bedside table is a small wooden music box with brass gears and a little statuette of an angel on the lid. I wind it up. You crank the handle on the side of the music box and a rather melancholy sort of plaintive tune starts playing. As you play it through, it seems at once familiar, but you can't quite place where you've heard it before. And then again, behind you, you can see and feel more hot smoke billowing into the room. When you turn around, sitting at the vanity is a woman. She is made entirely of flames. Her hair is woven smoke and her dress flutters and drips ash where she sits. She turns around on the stool on the vanity and stares at you with eyes of fire. Her expression seems tortured. Are you Anastasia? The woman snaps her head over to you and she stands up and lurches towards you. She seems unsteady on her fiery feet where she steps Small clusters of sparks spring onto the bedroom carpet, start to catch the drapery and the canopy of the bed as she bears down on you on the bedside table where you've kneeled to turn this crank. I would like to caress a horror. I think I have a lot of empathy for this figure. Okay, why don't you roll with blood? That is an eight. Okay, um, the horror is swayed by your stroke. Direct what was intended for you to another victim in the house. From under the bed, crawls uh, a young woman. You don't know how you could have missed her before. In fact, you're certain you looked well into the bed and that you didn't see a young woman there before. She must be some of some low station. She is wearing a gown that is the color of dirty dishwater. Her skin is pockmarked. Her hair is ratty and stuffed under a cap. And she stands up and she looks between you and Anastasia. Anastasia looks at her and she runs her hands along her scalp, and you can see a lock of her hair burn up. And she says, she helped me. And Anastasia starts playing with the servant girl's hair, setting it alight. The girl is whimpering and tears are welling in her eyes as the fire reaches her scalp and starts burning. She seems unable to move. Anastasia starts rubbing her hands along her dress, burning it. Soon the girl is going to be standing in just her underwear, shivering, embarrassed, crying, afraid. What do you do? She helped you with what? Madam asked me to leave the back gate open. I said I wasn't supposed to. She asked me to, so I did. I did and I did and I shouldn't have done it. It was wrong. It was wrong for me to have done it. This is my just reward now. Anastasia gestures to your lap where you're holding a box that has a book of matches in it. I hand it to her. She pushes it back into your hand. She holds the matchbook in one of your hands and a single match in the other. I'll light the match. The servant girl unnamed looks at you with trembling eyes and then closes them and lowers her head. Anastasia snakes a trail of fire down this girl's back, looks at you and nods. There's nothing I can do for this girl, right? This is the consequence of my mixed success. I think the mother would like you to not burn anybody. So that's one opinion. (laughs) The mother maybe is saying, put 
down the matches. If we don't do this, I think we're gonna get burned. Or if we don't do it, it's two against one. Animus, what do you think? I don't think that we should. You gonna do it anyway, or are you gonna listen to your sisters? Oh no, I'm gonna listen to my sisters, and I'm gonna grab her hand and try to pull her to safety. Maybe I'll even ask Anastasia, if she helped you, why did she deserve this? You pull on the servant girl's hand and scoop her up into your arms, trying your best to pat out the flames that spouted over her body. Her clothes are now in rags. She is sniffling and sobbing into the crook of your arm as you awkwardly tried to shelter her from Anastasia. This figure, this woman of fire, looks down at you with coldness and contempt in her eyes, and she says, We all sinned, and we will all be punished. And on the last word, she blows a cloud of smoke into your face. And this time it persists. At first you duck away and hold your breath, but soon you have to inhale and you start coughing and sputtering as heavy black smoke fills your lungs. You're gonna take one trauma. Which, you know, that could be one that you might wanna share with the sisters because they were like, don't do it. You guys want some trauma? No. Fuck that, that's your trauma. (laughs) (laughs) She's doing what you you told her to. You can just give it to us, we can't say no to it, us, but if you're asking me if I want it. Yeah, I think this is all of our trauma. We share this trauma. So we each mark one? Yeah. Okay, can I use my bear move? Tell me about your bear move. The bear. When a sister provokes trauma, you can step in and punish the sister who truly deserves it. Tell the guilty sister to mark the trauma instead and mark one trauma for yourself as well as your failure to prevent this is self-evident. Do you want to say something to the witch about how this decision is her fault? Maybe you should have given us the ring. You are always so obstinate in your feelings and in your actions. It's always this or that picking a side. Why couldn't you have been gentle and soothe them both and have them come to peace with each other properly? Yeah, you're always hogging the ring and then saying, oh, it's everyone's trauma. Uh, Whenever things go south, it's everyone's fault. Never your fault. (laughs) I'm giving Eli the ring. (laughs) Sorry, no, I don't want it. (laughs) No, you're getting the ring. Oh my God, I'm so going to die. Okay, well, uh, with my bear move, Jory and I will both mark two trauma each. Journal mark none. Oh, two trauma each? Yeah. Oh, I'm shattered. Oh. Oh, shit. Oh, you got the witch out. Oh, I thought you had one left. Oh, no. Uh, on your character sheet, I believe there will be something you need to read aloud, witch, now that you've been shattered. We are no longer whole. Our connection is severed. Our mind is fragmented. Our deepest fears are exposed. Our blood feeds the horrors, and I welcome them. The witch has been shattered. Mother, you have the ring. You're in a cloud of dizzying smoke. This child is weeping in your arms. This flame-wreathed woman is bearing down on you with hatred and shame in her eyes. What do you do? Dirty myself with violence. Uh, what's your action? What are you taking? What are you doing? Like, what I would like is, like, to douse her flames, but can I conveniently say there's water in the room? Like, On the vanity table, there's a spray of flowers and a pitcher of water. I take the the flowers out and I set them down on the vanity in a surprisingly gentle way considering this tense and chaotic moment and I throw the glass face at Anastasia hoping to shatter it and douse her flames permanently the old reverse Molotov cocktail (laughs) roll with carnality oh boy my carnality's not bad six a six is quite bad, no actually. No good. It's, it's very bad. Yes. 
Which, now that you are shattered, I might call upon you for assistance from time to time. The mother has failed entirely to dirty herself with violence against this flaming creature. How do you think she suffers for it? You're going to suffer some of the burns that the servant has suffered. You see the fire dance across your eyes as it scorches your hair and even burns most of it off, licking your scalp before it vanishes entirely. Your beautiful hair treasured by your husband lays in clumps of ash and bitter smell at your feet. I think you'll take at least one trauma from that. Yeah, which I agree, which means I'm shattered. Oh, shit. The yeah. old shatter, reverse shatter. We are doing the maximum <laughs> amount of rooms. Um, together, you should read your shatter poem. We, we are, are no longer, longer whole. whole. Our, Our connection, connection is, is severed. severed. Our, Our mind is, is fragmented. fragmented. Our, Our deepest, deepest fears, fears are exposed. Our blood feeds the horrors. The horrors and, and I, I welcome, welcome them. them. Animus, you are the one sister that remains. The others have attempted flattery, patience, courtesy, negotiation. All that's left is you. Practical, determined, unafraid. What will you do now? I will dirty myself with violence. <laughs> okay. What are you trying to do? I, honestly, if, if I can, I'd like to basically reattempt what the mother did. Well, to a certain degree, that bell can't be unrung because there's now a smashed wet vase on the floor. This is true. I mean... Uh, you could take, like, a blanket and try to smother the flames? I'm not yeah, is there, like, a tablecloth? No, but there's, uh, I think your best bet would be, like, the big, heavy bedclothes that she's standing right next to, like a big canopy and lots of sheets and things. Okay, let's do that. Roll with carnality. Seven. Okay. You grab the bedclothes, you circle around the room and put the furniture between yourself and Anastasia. The servant girl cowers in the corner. You pick up a bed sheet. And hoping against hope, you charge this woman, throwing the blanket over and attempting to wrestle it around her and smother her flame. You will either disable, silence, or mutilate her. Disable. Mm-hmm. And you will either be opened up to trauma or your carelessness will leave you in a bad spot. Or I will take a trauma. Okay. You smother her and charge forward, trying to knock her prone or keep her from attacking you. And as you do, she fights back attempts to grab at your limbs with smoking, burning hands that are trying to already burn through the thick layers of cotton of this uh, duvet. And the two of you smash into the open wardrobe. It teeters, unsteady, and then with a loud groan, it tips over, gorging its contents onto you, smashing its heavy wooden frame onto the both of you as you roll back in fear. You take one trauma as part of your leg is caught under the edge of this wardrobe, and when the smoke clears and you look down, all you can see is a skeletal hand wearing fine rings and bracelets sticking out Wicked Witch style from under the edge of this wardrobe. I think if the Amos finds that in this act of adultery, even though Bluebeard has been slighted, the reaction is, isn't merited because even for others, though, maybe something such as this may be seen as a rational response. Bluebeard is a man that hops between wives and murders them for entering a room, and it seems contradictory to to treat someone with such disregard for life for this as well. Um, 
a lot of women are treated as as property to the man, and it. I think the full skeletal hand itself, richly adorned in all these rings, is it a token of disloyalty that Bluebeard is a spiteful, mean-spirited, wildly deranged man that, though he has many characteristics that I could apologize for or even be empathetic towards, I think ultimately the sum of all parts is heinous character that's lived life too long to be good anymore. He's rotted away. Thank you. You take a skeletal hand as a token of your disloyalty. It will fit nicely in the glove. Sisters, I ask for your full attention as we come to the end of our tale. Though two of you are shattered, I still ask all of your opinions as we ask ourselves our final question. As we have filled up our disloyalty track before any other outcome, I'll read this. When the bride collects enough evidence to prove her husband's malicious intentions as a disloyal bride, she must choose to either present her evidence to the town or run away and start anew. Which do you choose, sisters? I think that we'd have to run away and start anew. Why? I mean, I don't think anything that we have is going to convince anyone else. Not the hands or the shears, the blood-covered shears? I don't know. I I guess you could be like, oh, you could see these rooms or something, but... I don't know if it has to be so literally damning. The best way to answer this question, I think, is to ask ourselves, based on what we've seen of our bride, who she is and how she acts, what will she choose? I think that's tough. My first instinct is to run away and start anew, but, like, I think on further inspection, she has attempted to help the people she's run into... And she might have guilt if she lets this happen to another woman. Yeah, yeah, I agree, actually. Yeah. The mother's story has very much been one of stealing your resolve to self-sacrifice for another. As literally shown when I (laughs) killed both me and Jory so that Jordan could live on. Um, And I would like to present that evidence to the town, even if they don't believe us or burn us or whatever. I, I can't let our family suffer. I agree, actually. I think that uh, even if we end up being a martyr for the cause, I think that that's more than our life would have amounted to otherwise. We have decided to present our evidence to the town? Yes. First, I will ask the Animus. What did the town do to rid themselves of the bride's disloyal ravings? Uh, Well, we came back, burned. (laughs) I mean, we already kind of were, but like, you know, stringy, wiry, dirty, um, maybe even barefoot at that time. We looked very much worse for wear. So I think that a group, uh, a significant group of the townspeople would just write us off as deranged, not of a sound mind, and perhaps even attribute it to just the uh, inability to, for such someone of a peasant upbringing to try and navigate the, uh, I guess, the nobility uh, proved too much for us. Mother, how did Bluebeard blackmail the bride's family into silence? I wanted this question. Uh, I think Bluebeard takes 
her little sister as the next bride. And so long as the sister, this, our, the bride's sister lives, um, the family is silent because they're hoping that there won't be a repeat. They're hoping that this daughter won't die. And it may be implied that Bluebeard neglects her or maybe even hurts her at times when he's angry, but she lives. And that's enough to keep the family quiet. Which, what loving gift does Bluebeard send the bride for their wedding anniversary? A meal like the one she gave to him so many years ago. Animus, what new room in Bluebeard's house haunts the bride's dreams every night? This ending, um, to clarify, implies that Bluebeard has probably captured the bride and that she has become some form of horror in the house. I see. It's a representation of of the precipice of of insanity that she is now uh, has all ten toes dangling over, only holding on with her with her heels. These shells of herself, perhaps literal shells or casings that have her voice echoing throughout the room, saying things that she fears will come true. You don't have to necessarily answer, but I might ask if you care to name it as like what kind of room it is, what the environs might be like. Is it a bedroom? Is it a kitchen? Is it a cellar? It is a expansive theater. 300 seats all filled by the bride and a cast that is also consisting of the bride in crude costumes. Mother, how does the bride make herself at home in that perfect new room? As I, as I decidedly established, her sister is now the new bride of this house, right? Her sister, who is maybe more obedient, lasts longer than she did, fills out all of the space that we failed to fill out. So to make ourselves feel comfortable and right and allowed to stay in this home, I think we cause suffering for ourselves as a way to atone. We only eat stale bread so that we might not take from another person's mouth and we hurt ourselves with burns and scrapes. An endless performance of sacrifice and suffering for any who care to watch. That's a wrap on Bluebeard's Bride. I hope you enjoyed this very unique game as much as we did. If you want to know about our process for safety tools in this game or listen to the music that I composed for this episode in high quality, those are both backer-only posts that you can read by supporting us at patreon.com slash Just saying. We'll be back le 19 janvier with our next episode. A plus!